I'm Joe White, the voice of Chris Redfield. When I'm not surviving the horror of the Spencer Mansion, I'm listening to the Crimson Head Elder podcast. This is Katie O'Hagan, the voice of Mia Winters, and when I'm not babysitting temperamental bioweapons, I'm listening to the Crimson Head Elder podcast. My name is Richard Wall. Just think of me as a ghost from the past. This is Paula Rhodes, Evelyn in Resident Evil 7 Biohazard. This is Michelle Ruff, the voice of Jill Valentine. I'm Riva DePala, the voice of Rebecca Chambers. Hi, my name is Allison Court. My name is Sarah Coates, the voice of Marguerite Baker, and you are listening to Crimson Head Elder Podcast. Wanna come to dinner? Welcome to the Crimson Head Elder Podcast with our very special guest who was part of the teams that created Japanese survival horror classics Resident Evil 4, Resident Evil 5, Resident Evil The Umbrella Chronicles, and Siren Blood Curse. This evening's star guest, writer, designer, and localization for both Capcom and Sony is Eric Bailey. Hi all, I'm doing good. How are you guys doing? We're doing excellent. Well, I'm just so grateful, Eric, that you decided to share your experiences with us working on some of our most favorite survival horror classics. We've got myself, George Trevor, and also from the Crimson Head Elder team, we have BSA Arclay. Hey, good to be here. And with our first question, we also have with us the Oracle Dragon. Hello, everyone. The question is simple and very easy. How did you first get started working in the video game industry, as well as ending up working for Capcom and Sony? Um, I've always loved games. Uh, Ever since I was a kid, my brother had Commodore 64 and all that, so that kind of dates me a little bit. I always loved games. Uh, The reason I got into programming and stuff like that in the first place was because of games, but when I got a job out of college, it was a programming job in a financial industry. Uh, That definitely wasn't for me. I left that, but because I was in Japan and I did have Japanese translation and skills and stuff like that, found a job working as a localizer at outsource company. Uh, And they worked with video games and stuff like that. That was kind of how I got my start in video games. And from there, uh, one of the projects I worked on was Onimusha 3. And that's kind of what got me over to Capcom uh, after that. So since then, I was at Capcom. After leaving Capcom, around when they were wrapping up uh, Resident Evil 5, went over to Sony. And from there, I was the game designer. And now I work at Red Flyer Studios, uh, which is a mobile company. So that's that's the short abridged version. I can go into as much detail as you guys want, but I think that's probably enough for <laughs> That's a great answer. And uh were you a fan particularly of the Resident Evil series beforehand? Oh, absolutely. Actually, I started with Resident Evil 2, the original Resident Evil 2, not the most recent one. <laughs> yeah, the the PlayStation version. Uh, I was in college and some Japanese students brought their PlayStation with them and they wanted to see how I I would react to this game. And that's when I first got my introduction to Resident Evil 2 played through the whole thing same day we also watched the japanese version of the movie ring so i was left with nightmares for about a week but (laughs) thereafter uh, and then i played through the other games so after kind of visiting japan someone had the original resident evil on a saturn so i got to play through that uh when i was an exchange student someone lent me their playstation and i got to play through resident evil 3 there picked up a dreamcast for code veronica etc (laughs) etc Unfortunately, the games I haven't played through are the most recent ones. I actually I think the last one I played was not Resident Evil 6, but the episodic one, Revelation. Yeah, so that's probably the most recent Resident Evil game I've played. Is there anything you could tell us about your time at Sony? Any particular games you worked on? 
Yeah, for Sony. With Sony, I was more on the, the actual game team itself. So my productivity went down in terms of the number of titles I was involved in, but started with Siren Blood Curse. And then after that, moved to a, a game called Gravity Rush. After that was Puppeteer and then Gravity Rush 2 and then a couple of other like prototype things uh, that never got released. You've been working a lot with Project Siren? Yeah, because I was a huge fan of the first two games when they were released here. Uh, so when I got a chance to work on Siren, the third one, Blood Curse, uh, definitely had to take that opportunity. Gravity Rush, that's also Project Siren, the developer? Yeah, most of the Project Siren members. Uh, so yeah, kind of Gravity Rush was a spiritual successor. <laughs> no, no, just yeah, just the, the same team. Scenario writer, director, lead game designers. Most of the same people went over to the Gravity Rush team. All right, this question comes from Resident Evil Chick 96, and she says, Eric, do you have any favorite characters in the Resident Evil series? Oh, yes, 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 yes. Um, <laughs> this is speak to the fact that I started with Resident Evil 2, so probably other people who did start with that game first are going to give similar answers, but pretty much any character that showed up in that game. Um, <laughs> Leon and Ada have a special place. And then just an overriding character that's been throughout the series that I love is, is of course, Wesker. It's just awesome. Bad guys are fun. <laughs> get to play with the biggest toys and make and then make the biggest trouble so yeah. <laughs> and we often hear that don't we from the voice actors that play the antagonist you know richard Warren, yeah right? i love yes. being the villain they have the most interesting stories <laughs> and it's true they do exactly because they're the ones that get to make the messes heroes just have to clean it up so making the messes is more fun but that's a good point my favorite characters and i've really thought about it on that issue i've always found chris and leon I wouldn't say boring, but just perhaps not as multidimensional as these <laughs> complete freaks of nature like Alexia Ashford and, and, and Alfred and, and, like you say, Wesker. And... <laughs> Might want to take that out. Bad mouth in oh. Alexia. They love your oh. head. <laughs> 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 Alexia fans are crazy. <laughs> <laughs> She's not a villain, but like Ada. Well, the problem with like Chris and Leon is that you're playing them. So you know exactly who they are. They're kind of thrust into the situation. They're not behind it or anything. They're just kind of the good guys trying to make the best of the situation. So they're going to be kind of boring compared to someone like Ada or, or Wesker. And like Ada, you know, it was interesting because you never know like what she's up to, why she's doing what she's doing. Why does she help him sometimes? Why does she seem to, to go against him sometimes? And that kind of stokes the imagination, like Wesker too. It's like, why is he doing all this stuff in the first place? What is what is he really after? It stokes the imagination, whereas like Chris or Leon, they're just kind of, they're shooting bad things and, and kind of fixing stuff. So you, you know what their motivations are. And as a translator, I'm, obviously I imagine they have the more interesting script. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. That was what was great in separate ways. It is a fun character. Okay, okay. Her dialogue with Leon, this kind of sort of flirtatious back and forth, I wonder how much of that you have to be careful that you find the right balance that comes from the Japanese original, whether it's more subtle in the Japanese. Yeah, but actually in that case, like the, the Ada stuff that I can remember in Japanese too, they, they liked the playful back and forth. It, it's not something that I think just appeared in the English out of nowhere. It was always kind of inner character and stuff, especially from separate ways. And that might speak to the fact that Shinsako Hara and other people who are, who are more kind of Western-minded had, had a role in that too. But yeah, her character was fun. And I think even like Wesker, like Resident Evil 5 and stuff like that, more than the Chris lines and stuff like that, it's the Wesker lines that I think both me and Brandon had, had more fun with having a more western orientated mind or appreciation 
a game just before Resident Evil 4, which I actually think does some of the series improvements and gameplay changes better than Resident Evil 4, Resident Evil Dead Aim. Right, and that's right. got And that's got a very Western protagonist in it. Bruce McGiven, we found out from Raj Mariah, the voice actor, that he was based on the Brad Pitt character from Seven, very ah, southern, southern American. Yeah, that kind of clicks. That makes sense now. There's that very flirtatious back and forward relationship between Bruce and Fong Ling in that game. Yeah, I'm not sure, like, in the community how much of a black sheep it is in terms of, like, game compared to the other games. But, yeah, but I'm probably on the side that actually liked that game quite a bit. Yay! Not in terms of the game itself, but in terms of the atmosphere and the story and everything else. I thought it was yes. quite creepy, and, and, like, the characters were well done, and the story was interesting. Kind of surprised that it got knocked as much as it did, but, yeah, I enjoyed playing through that one quite a bit. I couldn't agree more with your points, Eric. The atmosphere you mentioned straight away and, and, and the creepy story. I've always got a feeling of The Shining those corridors when you're it's wonderful i think when you're on the boat there's no background track like a lot you know a lot of the iconic signature tunes with particular rooms in the mansion or the rpd other than just the creaking of the cruise ship isolated in the middle of the ocean i I just think that's fantastic yeah and like i don't know this may be another game that divides fans too but i thought revelations kind of hit that similar place for me when i played through that game i wasn't really expecting very much but i actually really enjoyed that because it took me back to kind of the re where it was more creepy more scary more atmospheric as opposed to you know having a rocket launcher and blowing stuff up (laughs) yes i just want to qualify this question because uss command is an absolute gentleman and when he says about horribly translated i know he's referring to the older games as opposed to the ones that you worked on eric (laughs) that's okay (laughs) Here comes his question. USS Command, he asks or says, some in the Resident Evil community believe the series is horribly translated. But what is your feeling on that statement? Yeah, I completely understand because I started with the Resident Evil games and I thought, yeah, they were, (laughs) it was very interesting. Um, But I guess at the time when I first played through Resident Evil 2 and the original Resident Evil, it didn't stand out that much as jarring at the time, I guess, because maybe video games at the time, probably the quality in general of like writing and text wasn't that high as it is like now. At least at the time, it didn't sound as jarring. But yeah, like going back and playing them now, (laughs) obviously you can make plenty of videos out of them. The weird statements that they make and Jill sandwiches and all that sort of (laughs) stuff. But it's hard to say who they got to translate the original games and what that flow was like. But I can imagine that in terms of like Japanese game development at the time, localization wasn't really something that was seen as that important. Like most video game companies probably didn't have a localization team. Capcom had localization people, but I think it was mainly when... uh, then Judd stepped in and, and made a localization team that that started happening. But it just wasn't taken that seriously that I think a lot of Japanese companies felt that if they made a good game, that was enough. As long as it makes sense, that's fine. That was probably where they were at in the original games. Probably quality wasn't the high priority. Maybe there was no one that could judge quality within the company. That's possible too. But I think at least, you know, with who I talked about earlier, Shinsako and other people who could speak English and talk to the Japanese dev teams were probably the ones that started telling the teams, look, we've got to up the quality on these things or we're going to become viral video. So that, that was probably what got them started on trying to improve those translations. Yeah, and I'm sure it's all to do with the rising production levels of video games. It's gone from slightly more niche when the first Resident Evil game came out, and it's just been encompassed by a much wider and broader mixed audience over the years, and and those production values have risen, and they invest more heart into the games and want to get those translations up to match the other higher production levels. Yeah, I could completely see that being the case. I'd be curious to hear if anyone was on the original Resident Evil team and you do an interview with them, just to ask them if they imagined that Resident Evil would become kind of the the worldwide hit that it did uh, when they were making the game, because they might not have thought that it would have been that popular overseas. (laughs) 
I was thinking this in terms of consideration for that audience outside of Japan. Yeah, and also probably the the production at the time, like in terms of like the way they made games and stuff, might not have allowed that much slack for localization. Because I know like a lot of a lot of other Japanese games have had that issue where it's just like we need this translated really quick, and so they gave ridiculous schedules and no information and stuff, and the translators were just doing the best they could with what they had. Uh, so there could be some of that involved too. Can I just mention we have a no swearing policy before I ask you this next question? <laughs> I'm only teasing because Alan Wempe Mao and Resident Evil Chick 96 want to know, Eric, what do you think of the live action Resident Evil movies? <laughs> Remember what I just said. Uh, if, if you were approached about writing for a reboot of the Resident Evil films, would you do it? Would you keep it more horror orientated since the last live action films, this is well, a very polite way of putting it, were more action orientated? Yeah, I promise not to swear. I will give the Resident Evil movies a fair shake. I enjoyed them. I've seen all of them in the theater. All of the movies, I've gone and seen them in the theater and enjoyed and enjoyed all of them. Some more than others. <laughs> Some a lot more than others. But uh, in terms of like what I think of the live action Resident Evil movies, the first one I really liked. Great soundtrack. That opening was awesome when just like soldiers are, are charging in and you've got like the theme song, the music, the bass cranking, and you've got the soldiers breaking into the windows and everything else and what's going on, the descent down, everyone getting sliced up by the Red Queen and everything else. That was just, oh, I loved that. For me, and I've heard others mention it who are particularly disparaging about the others, that that's by far the best from the series. But I think it bore the brunt of the heaviest criticism being the first one and that fan disappointment that wanted it to be very close to the video game narrative. I think it definitely bore that brunt, but I take your point. I'd agree that by far in terms of atmosphere and being slightly close to that, that original feel and aesthetic of the Spencer Mansion is definitely the better of the series. Yeah, I guess because I do kind of understand that movies have to be different from video games. Just the fact that it was a good, a good scary movie was enough for me. Uh, and maybe that's, in a way, what disappointed me with like the second movie. I think the second movie was the one where I was most disappointed um, because I was kind of expecting the first movie, that kind of scary tension to keep going. But then maybe they started to take too much of the fan feedback into it because I remember like, was it Jill showing up in like that kind of the yes. cheesy kind of video game costume and stuff like that? And it's like no one in real life would wear this kind of uniform. And it's like, just, it just yeah. felt like too much of the gamey stuff was kind of forced into the movie and it felt really awkward. You had the original character like Mila and, and the, the character that they developed mixing in with these video game characters, and it just felt really weird. So like the second movie was probably the one that was the biggest letdown for me. But then after kind of lowering my, in a way, kind of lowering my expectations with the second movie, the movies after that, I was just kind of along for the ride. <laughs> and so it's like, okay, zombies kicking things, yeah. blowing things up. Yeah, all right, fine. <laughs> enjoyed it. <laughs> the last movie was almost so ridiculous that I enjoyed that too. It's off the rails, so <laughs> I enjoyed it. There's stuff that you can do in video games and stuff that you can do in movies and they don't mix. <laughs> and they tried to do too much stuff that you can do in video games. And it, it didn't feel like it fit. It's unfortunate too, because like you have, if you rewrote, well, this, I guess this will kind of go into like what I would do to keep the series like more horror oriented or less live action or whatever probably ties into that. But if I did have a chance, it's like you have these great characters like Jill and Wesker and Chris and, and, and some of the side characters too, even like Barry and other characters. You have all these great characters that if you reworked them a little bit, you could make them into very deep like movie characters. But if you just take them straight from the video game, it's going to be kind of a hard translation to film. 
I guess across the series of movies, the characters that were introduced in the first movie and then like, you know, the the ultimate bad guy, the non-Wesker bad guy that they introduced for it, those were the characters that were kind of done well. It seemed like the characters that that relied on the video game characters were the ones where they kind of slipped. Yeah. I just need to add more context. I think it'd be much better as a TV show because then they'd have more time to build on. Yeah, well, that'd make a great TV show. All right, next question. It's a very, very long one, and it comes from our BSA Arclay. Recently on a Capcom Confidential podcast with Capcom's localization teams, Miguel Corti and David Cockman, they discuss the translations and how some of the translations are changed to help make a more universal language. So, for instance, a sentence in Japanese might not make sense in an English or French context, so the wording may be changed, not necessarily for the accurate translation, but for one that makes sense to a Western reader. But of course, this can change the subject material, much to the anger of fans. Yes, that's a definite line that probably every translator across the world <laughs> runs into. And everyone kind of has their own place where they fall, I guess. Especially like literary translators, of course, want to protect the source material as much as possible because the goal is to get that across. Whereas I think in, in movies and especially video games, it's not so much protecting the original source material, but making a game that makes sense for the gamers overseas. So like Miguel and David's comment, I definitely understand that and definitely appreciate it. I'm probably going to fall on the same lines that they do too. Whereas if protecting the original Japanese as much as possible makes something that's a little awkward, that's not going to come across to the average gamer who's just picking up the game and isn't maybe into the exact nitty gritty details, it's going to serve greater gaming good in the end, I think. So a lot of translators do kind of fall on that line. Some translators do try to try to stay a little more literal. It's just one of those personal decisions, I think, that comes down to both the translator, maybe the company as well. Some companies probably want to bring across the original Japanese as much as possible, but others are more flexible. And Capcom's always been pretty flexible about that. I've always been keen on trying to keep the translation as close to the author's original intention. So my attitude tends to be that if it sounds slightly jarring or off to my Western ear, that's really down to me to have maybe, I don't know, a greater understanding of the Japanese context. That's my responsibility to understand it rather than just have it changed too far away from what the author originally intended. It's when sometimes they change it and then it doesn't stay true to the original source. That's where the problem comes in then. Capcom, were they aware of changes? How do they feel about the changes? Yeah, usually their QA department would look it over, and if it is too different from the Japanese, they might come back and say, are you sure you want to do this? There's another decision that needs to be made there. Uh, I think in most cases, we did try to fall on the border that makes things less awkward, even if it does distort the original source material a little bit. We tried to keep it as close to the original as possible to respect the writers as much as possible. But I think the main thing is just making sure that the game feels like it isn't too much of something that's coming out of Japan or too Japanese, I guess, in a way. Do you think that comes from the original? It's iconically known for being cheesy dialogue now, and maybe they're trying to get away from that? Yeah, that definitely could be part of it. Like some of the roots in that mindset could have its roots there. Obviously, they were (laughs) lambasted for the original like Resident Evil translations and things like that. So I think it it probably did enter their mindset that, okay, this is maybe not how we should do things. On the same podcast, they also state that the games are originally written in English and then later translated to Japanese, which seems to go against pretty much everything the community has always believed. All the original files are first written in the native Japanese and then later translated by the localization teams. Can you provide any information on this? 
Yeah, in terms of that, it could be that around the time I left and then Miguel and a few other people came in, like Pete, uh, who's in charge of localization there, they probably started getting onto the, the development teams more and more. And, you know, all that trust we've earned over the years started to kind of pay back in terms of the teams giving localization more and more access and maybe trusting localization to make more decisions and things like that. So it could very well be the case right now that maybe they give like a, a kind of a plot direction in Japanese and then the English comes first. That's possible. It could very well be the case that they, for example, have an original Japanese script that gets translated into English. And then if there's anything weird, then the English gets brushed up. They record that and then maybe reflect those changes back into the Japanese. That could be what they meant. It's it's hard to say. If Resident Evil 7 stands out as, as the first time that the files and the story were originally written in English. Rev 2 was first. Oh, I may be wrong then, because I was going to suggest, would it be because was Resident Evil 7 the first time that a Western writer wrote the game? So maybe that would be why. I don't know who wrote Revelations 2. Yeah, that could be the case too. That having having like an actual English scriptwriter do the first treatment or something, it, it could be the way they're going right now, especially because Resident Evil is such a big game overseas. Giving that priority to the English version makes a lot of sense. So that could very well be what they're doing right now. It actually started with Revelations. It started with Revelations 2, yeah. Well, Dai Soto wrote the game. He's Japanese. But like Eric said, I think maybe they just got more confidence or more relationship with the localization team. They're on the podcast and everything now, and they work in, in the same office. Eric said you was a bit separated. Yeah, it was its own team and everything else. Uh, no one was on the dev teams. I think right now there are. They actually do go down to the dev teams and stuff. It's yeah. just one of those things step by step. Uh, like when the localization team was first there, probably nobody knows why they need a localization team in the first place. As that benefit of having that team gets kind of proven over the years, they probably just give them more and more responsibility and trust them more and more. So they're probably in a very good place right now where they can actually go down to the teams, make decisions. They're probably even involved in creative meetings, everything else right now. It's a good idea, though, to bounce back and forth between the different languages before you actually finalize a script. Oh, absolutely. Going back to your work with the Resident Evil series, we have a question here from Alan Wempei Mao from New Jersey and our very own BSA Arkley over in Wales. And they ask, did you work in a team with Capcom's Japanese writers when translating or were you left to your own devices? Did this differ between productions of Resident Evil 4, 5 and Umbrella Chronicles? Yeah, that's an interesting question. It definitely depends on the project. In most cases, Capcom's localization team, I think they've changed. More recently, they're, I think they're more embedded with the teams now. But at least at the time, the localization team was still kind of its own department. So usually once the Japanese script was starting to get wrapped up, or at least was kind of close to getting wrapped up, is when they would start feeding us some of the translation work to be done. So in that case, there wasn't too much we could do to change the original like script or anything, but at least the teams were available. So if we had questions like, what's going on here? What did you mean by this? We were definitely allowed access to that. So it's definitely better than like the far past when you would send translations out to another company and with no context or information whatsoever, and they'd do what they could and then send it back. It was definitely a lot better than that. That method you referenced, are you aware specifically that that's what they did for the first couple of Resident Evil games? Because, you know, the translations of those in-game files always do throw up errors when they're compared to the Japanese originals. It could have been internal or something, but it does seem like that's a definite possibility that they were given to someone to translate without the context of what's going on. Yeah, just particularly that point you say about the context, if you're translating and you're not aware of the narrative that you're using, I think that actually connects with the particular errors that we have noticed over the years. 
Yeah, and especially with Japanese, one of the things that's trickier about Japanese than maybe some European languages to English is that Japanese is a very abridged language. So they leave out subjects and things like that all the time. So you don't even know if it's a he or a she or a they. So context is very important. You basically get verbs and adjectives and you're trying to make sense of them. Yeah, I sent off a translation to a professional before and he was supposed to have been captain and they came back commander simply because they didn't know the context. It should have been captain. Yeah, that definitely happens in Japanese. So I see you've managed to arrive at the village on time. Gather as much information as you can about the parasites and finish off this little tour. The next question is from Negan's Bat, and he asks, how did you approach the writing for separate ways, and how much influence did Capcom Japan hold over you? I like the username, by the way, Negan's Bat. <laughs> oh, that's cool. So yeah, the um, for the idea, yeah, the writing for the separate ways. For that, it wasn't so much writing, it was translating again. But with that, the person in charge of the writing on the team and at least interfacing with localization, Shinsaku Ohara, worked pretty closely with us. So I had all the information I needed to translate that one. Uh, in terms of how much influence did Capcom Japan hold over me, I guess in, in that sense, uh, Shin, he's perfect English, everything else. So he's able to look over the script and if he spotted anything that was kind of fishy or anything, he could get back to me on that. Uh, so that was actually a great help having him having them there on that team. It wasn't like pushing or anything. So it wasn't like Capcom Japan's like lording over me or, or trying to, to influence the translation or anything like that. But it was uh, very helpful to have him there. And that was a great project to work on. Should give credit as well to uh, the editor at the time, Brandon Gay. He was there with me and he's a huge Resident Evil fan, far, far, far beyond me. So having him there was also very helpful. So having that triple team on that project and some of the other RE projects made it a lot easier to work with RE than even some other Capcom games for translation. It's fantastic DLC, Separate Ways, such an iconic character, Ada Wong. And I mean, that must have been such great fun working on. Yeah, especially, like I said, starting from Resident Evil 2, Ada has kind of a special place. <laughs> so that was a nice start. Absolutely. Well, sticking with Resident Evil 4, Yoke from North America, he asks, you worked on the team behind the Resident Evil 4 DLC, which showcases Ada Wong, Separate Ways. Do you know why Separate Ways was written? I have seen people suggest it was to make RE4 more relevant to the rest of the story in the series. Yeah, with Resident Evil 4, moving from the GameCube to the PlayStation, uh, having extra content to kind of justify its existence is probably part of what got that extra content greenlit in the first place. Uh, and then in terms of choosing Ada, well, obviously the, the Leon connection and then kind of going back to RE2 and bringing Ada back is probably behind that. Like it was probably the character that made sense to kind of do a separate story on. Yeah. Yeah, to make it more relevant, to kind of bring what Wesker's doing, what Ada are doing, you know, while Leon's doing this stuff in RE4. It makes sense as a content decision. Okay, next question comes from BSA Arclay, and he asks, when translating source material, and you do have to change a line due to a language barrier, how does Capcom view this? For example, in Resident Evil 5, the English version suggests that the number of test subjects for the Wesker project were limited to 13. However, the Japanese version suggests that they could have been more. Also, in Chronicles, Wesker's Phoenix line was added to the English version. Which one takes precedence in terms of being canon? Do Capcom even consider having a series canon? Yeah, that's an interesting question. 
in terms of stuff like that, usually we would try to be as close to the source material as possible, especially when it comes to numbers and names and things like that. Because if you translate something wrong there and it gets used somewhere else, then that link kind of gets broken and things stop making sense. So usually we would try to protect that. So it could very well be just something where maybe originally it did say 13, but it got changed later or all sorts of things could happen. But in terms of like canon, because the writers are Japanese and they are working on the Japanese version, I think the safe way to go is to think of the canon as the Japanese version, because English obviously is translated from the Japanese, but the, the source is always Japanese. So in terms of which one's being protected as canon, I think the Japanese version, although if there are probably with localization now, if there are things in the English that weren't in the Japanese or a little different than the localization department, probably would mention that to the team. And then maybe the team could incorporate that in the Japanese. There could be some back and forth going there now. Uh, but in terms of having a series canon, I'm not sure exactly how far the dev teams go into making sure that they have a canon. I know they try to protect it as much as possible, even though writers and, and translators change over the years. At least on the localization side, I know there were glossaries and things like that, like this character's always named this or spelled this way. This is always referred to as this. You know, all those sort of like the kind of dictionary, the RE dictionary existed. But in terms of actual canon itself, probably the major details are obviously written down and, and kept track of, but maybe some of the minor things that the original writer might have thought of that got lost over the years, those things probably do exist. Chris, how nice of you to join us. Uroboros is on the eve of its appearance. Six billion cries of agony will birth a new balance. Okay, it's my question too. Can you tell us about the draft of the script of Resident Evil 5 and if you were able to go back and change anything in the game you worked on? And if so, what were those changes be and why would they be made? Resident Evil 5... There's not really anything that I could think of that we would go back and change. We had a pretty good amount of time to work on it and discuss it and talk back and forth with the dev team. So I think maybe if we did play through it again, we'd probably see some things, some nitpicks that we'd want to change. But I could imagine like me, Brandon, maybe Miguel as well are probably pretty happy with where we got it. I think it's got one of the best stories in the series. Yeah, even just as a fan, I liked it quite a bit. And I was okay with the gameplay too. I actually kind of liked the action thing and especially the co-op thing, even if the co-op does kind of take away from the, the survival horror and kind of the scary aspects of the game. Just as a game, being able to play that online with other people and that yeah. stuff was fun. I enjoyed RE5 quite a bit. And the series needed that as well. I think if the series had stayed as I'd wanted it as a traditionalist, it would have died. It had to step up and go to that wider audience. Yeah, definitely. I love the original games, but it, it would be hard to imagine like if something with the original controls or even RE4 controls was released now, it would be a tough sell. It must have been a difficult game for you to translate. There's a lot of background information in that game. That's why it was very helpful having like someone who's a super fan of the series like Brandon. Editing was a big help because even though I was a fan of Resident Evil, I'm probably not to the extent where I'd be like analyzing files and trying to do things like that. It's just more I enjoy the games as they come out, play them through a couple of times, try to get extra characters and stuff like that. So in terms of like that kind of encyclopedic knowledge, Brandon was big help in that case. It's a better prequel than RE0. <laughs> Um, it gives so much background, and then yes. it also catapulted the series into the future with the BSAA and Alex Wesker, all these plot lines that they set up for, like, Revelations, Revelations 2, and only now, really, are we starting to move away from that stuff. Yeah, it was a huge game, like, in terms of what it was trying to do. It was very ambitious. 
And the game's still top seller, too. Yeah. After all these years, it's still number one. And it's still one of the most beautiful-looking Resident Evil games. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, staying with Resident Evil 5, we've got a question from the Oracle Dragon over in Pennsylvania. Hey, Aaron. <laughs> she asks, what interested you the most in the writing of Resident Evil 5? Oh, so many things. Well, like the stuff you were talking about, the fact that it does tie in so much of the series and tries to set it in a new direction was great. I really liked the fact that it was trying to move into a new direction in terms of moving away from just necessarily zombies and trying to kind of expand that out a little bit. That was interesting. But I've always been a big Wesker fan. So the fact that Wesker was kind of featured into it and like him and Chris and things like that coming up were things that excited me and then and the editor as well. Do you recall working on the, the beta of the game? No, I don't think we worked on the beta part of it. When we first started getting the scripts and things, it was pretty much the game. The direction of the game was pretty much the game that was released. Darn. (laughs) (laughs) We want so much information about the beta. Andrew, I think it's your turn. Yeah, um, we got another one from Negan's Bat, and he says, what was your greatest challenge with the localization for all of the Resident Evil 5 files? Oh yeah, this will definitely tie into what we've been talking about, but just the fact that the game and the files cover so much of history uh, and what's been done in the series so far, trying to do our best to make sure that we don't slip up and accidentally translate something that's existed before or um, suddenly say something new that was decided a different way earlier. Trying to keep all that in there was definitely one of the biggest challenges. I quite believe now that the Capcom devs are treading on eggshells because of so much of the history they've set now. Basically, anything they can say can contradict something from the past, like especially with Remake 2, when you go into like a game which is in the middle of a Raccoon City incident. And it's just got to be quite daunting to try and not slip up. Probably something where even the writers themselves have trouble because, you know, some of the games were developed at the same time. Some games were developed outside. Well, obviously, the, the non-numbering series, uh, a lot of those games were developed outside of Capcom with Capcom's guidance and stuff like that. So even on the Japanese side, there could be some disparity going on. Wasn't Code Veronica outsourced? Yeah, I guess props to the the outsource company because Code Veronica, other than RE2, was probably one of the games that really like stood out as as a top RE game for me when I played through it, and it was it was breathtaking when I played through it on the Dreamcast. Yeah. The fact that I didn't know that it was not Capcom or was outsourced or something is definitely props to the team that made that game mm, because it continues the story from RE1, which then picks up again in five. Welcome to the Umbrella Chronicles. Biohazard. The outbreak occurred in the summer of 1998. It started in the American Midwestern town of Raccoon City and brought hell to Earth. Yes, yes, yes. We're on to the next question. Yoke and Alan Wenpei Mao. They both ask, were there any significant changes made when translating Resident Evil The Umbrella Chronicles? Significant changes when translating. In terms of significant changes from the Japanese text, there shouldn't be, there wasn't anything at least intentional. We tried to follow the original Japanese as much as possible, and then kind of the same thing as, as the last question, because there's a lot of history involved, trying to make sure that we don't do something different. To try and keep probably some of the, it's not so much fan service, but trying to keep like the fans in mind uh, of, of kind of the original Resident Evil games without just copying the original like files and text and things like that uh, was kind of important because if you if you just go back to the original kind of source material and just repeat it then it 
what sounded bad at the time is going to sound even worse now. So you can't do that. But at the same time, you don't want to just completely ignore what happened in the past. So it's kind of a balance that had to be struck with making sure that we acknowledge that the source material existed and, you know, some of the translations as well. Kind of acknowledge that, but at the same time, make it pretty clear that in a modern context, that that's not just a mistranslation on our part, for example. Older games, like they they would have like font issues in translation, like the display could only show so many characters and things like that. So you had to squeeze a lot of Japanese meaning down into, into very minimal like English. But at least from Umbrella Chronicles, RE5, from that time on, like character limits and things like that weren't really a super huge issue. Having things cut and shortened and abbreviated and stuff like that could be behind some of the quality issues in, in older translations too. I know Welsh posted some information a while back that in the Umbrella's End scenario, there was more dialogue interactions between Chris and Jill. There was also soldiers, military soldiers from the Russian government. They were going to play a role in the game. It also appears in the novel as well. It could very well be the case. Like as content to be cut, it kind of makes sense if it's if it's not the main stuff. The files in Umbrella and Dark Side Chronicles are slightly cut and shortened. They're verbatim to their originals in the main titled games, but for example, I know with the Resident Evil 2 file operation report, the last couple of lines are left off. It's not something that we would intentionally do, but if it's if it's completely cut off rather than being shortened, it's hard to say. It doesn't seem like something we would do intentionally. Eric, I need a name. I'll tell you why. I'm looking for someone to blame. When uh, Paul Haddad, the original voice actor for Leon S. Kennedy, we were the first podcast to interview him, and he also very kindly read in character. He reprised his character and read one of the game files, and I sent him the text from Darkside Chronicles of Operation Report. When I saw the first few lines, you know, with verbatim, it didn't occur to me that actually it was pointed out to us that it was shortened, and if I'd given the original, we would have got an even longer recording. <laughs> yeah, I want a name. You're so demanding. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had a name to give you, but yeah, if, if it was something that um, was a problem in the English, then it's probably me and Brandon's fault, but it's hard to say like why that why that would have happened. But we're making up for it now. <laughs> Trying to, yeah. This question comes from JC Wesker from England. He asks, how much of the source material were you familiar with before going into Umbrella Chronicles, since Umbrella Chronicles both draws from and recreates or reimagines story from various different classic titles? Yeah, so up until Umbrella Chronicles, I played every Resident Evil game, even the Gun Survivor games, I played through all those. So I knew knew all the source material, not in terms of replaying the game and really having it like memorized like some people would have, but at least in terms of knowing all of the games and having played through them multiple times and knowing the story and stuff. Uh, in terms of more of the detailed stuff, again, that would be the editor, Brandon. He was much more into like remembering things, so he would have been the one that would have been most familiar with the source material and making sure that uh, it stays true to that. He's a super fan too, so he would have wanted that connected as possible to the original games because he appreciated those as well. It's always wonderful when there's someone that works on the series that is such a big fan to begin with. I'm sure that helps a lot just with, you know, with your passion and wanting to keep that translation as accurate as possible. It definitely brings things up. Like if you are a fan of, of something that you're translating, even if something's unclear, it kind of sends a flag up into your mind. It kind of prompts you like, I should find the answer to this question because it'll probably matter. It does add that little extra push that gets you to talk to the dev team and, and find those answers where if you aren't familiar with the material, maybe you just translate it and kind of move on. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely.
Right, this is more my statement. I just wanted to say the Siren Blood Curse is an insanely creepy game. I vividly remember playing it back when the PS3 was still in its infancy. The voices and the way the enemies moved really sent shivers down my spine. It was one of the last video games to actually scare me. There seems to be strong vibes of Evil Dead within these games. Yeah, in terms of Evil Dead, I'm, I know like the scenario writer and stuff likes the Evil Dead movies and has seen all of them and appreciates them and stuff like that. Yeah, there could be some of that in there, but there's definitely like a series of Japanese books that kind of inspired some of it. And the novels themselves were based on, on the Stephen King franchise too. Ah. The Stephen King series where it was vampires in a village sort of turning into the shibito, the, the kind of the zombie-ish guys. The body contortions and the movement of the two antagonists when they meet each other and they almost do this like ritualistic dance. The twitchy kind of like... Yes. Yeah, it's just kind of the way they moved, like awkward, they movements, especially Evil Dead 2 with the dancing, his girlfriend when she starts dancing and the limbs is really creepy oh. to watch. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That could be part of the inspiration for like the animators and things that were working on that game. That makes sense. They probably put a lot of effort into that because especially because the system and Siren, like for people who aren't familiar with the game, you basically jump into the vision of other people sight jacking, but you can take over the sight of other people, including including those kind of zombie-like characters. So probably having that crazy animation and kind of the over-the-top animation is probably part of that because like if you are in the mind of like a zombie kind of walking around and you see other characters and they're just being zombies, then that's not very interesting. But if they are like animated in acting out for you, then it kind of feels like it just adds that extra layer to it. I did some research on it. It's rumored that Siren is based on a real-life abandoned village in Chichibu Prefecture in Japan. Do you know anything about this? Was it actually based on a real location? If it's based on a location, it's probably not so much that there's like a history or something that Siren's trying to pick up. It's probably more just the atmosphere or something like maybe. The Siren team is, has often gone to like abandoned places and, and facilities and things like that for source material and inspiration. So in terms of that, like that village could have provided a lot of inspiration for, oh, okay, this is the kind of town that would, that would scare people. <laughs> yeah, because some of the shacks, they look almost <laughs> like identical, like they were taken from the game. And the village got like this backstory that there was a landslide. A lot of the houses collapsed. I think that's actually part of the lore in Forbidden Siren. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Also then the villagers kind of thought it was like a demonic curse, destroyed the village. Kichiro Toyama. He wrote the script for Siren and Silent Hill. And Silent Hill is kind of rumored to be based on Centralia as well in, in Pennsylvania. If he sees these real life locations and kind of takes the story. It's certainly possible. Like, um, I should give credit to the scenario writer on the Siren series because because she's she's responsible for a lot of that series. But uh, Naoko Sato, she's basically the writer, the one who comes up with the plot and like a lot of the materials and stuff, like the overall visions. Because she she's very familiar with a lot of source material, both Western and Japanese, even like, you know, occult stuff and tabloid stuff and everything else. She's She's got a wide range of interests and knowledge. She always likes to incorporate that kind of stuff. A lot of the, the Siren archives and things like that probably come from her knowledge of that stuff. Yeah, she's probably did look for like news stories and, and things like that. And it's like, oh, okay, this would be an interesting source material. I wouldn't be surprised if she found that village and thought this would be a good setting. Four out of five of the biggest Japanese franchises. They're all based on like real life locations. You got uh, Siren in Chichibu, Centralia, which is apparently Silent Hill is based on. Then you got Fatal Frame series, which is based on the real life story of the Himaru Mansion. Aside from Resident Evil, they all seem to be based on real stories. Maybe that's like a Japanese because you got like the grudge and things like that as well. And those are based on like spirits from that culture. They believe those kind of Japanese spirits, they all kind of have that grudge look. 
Yeah, yeah, that's that could be something that's very traditional, like Japanese horror and and everything else in Japan, because they have a long history and a lot of dark history there too. There's probably a lot more of that, whether it's good or bad energy or whatever, attached to a place or or things. That seems to be a common theme. Like the stories seem to be a bit more attached to reality. Yeah, not so much like a psycho killer or just like one maniac, but like a place becoming evil. Yeah, I guess in a way, like if you were to, to compare it to like Western pop culture, it'd be kind of like Star Wars Empire Strikes Back and, and like the cave or something on Dagobah. <laughs> the director of the game is Keiichiro Toyama and then all the scenario and the story and stuff like that is Naoko Sato. But yeah, she she was completely behind the kind of archive system that they had. The archives, that's the, yeah. yeah. I thought they were really fantastic. They give loads of background law. My recent problems with Remake 2 and RE7, I think they've kind of died back on the details a bit, like the textures and stuff on the wall. They're blurry. You can't read them. And you expect, like, oh, this is going to be amazing. It's going to have lots of details about stars and the RPD, and, and it's just blurred out. You can't read any of it. Well, in Siren, not only do they, in the archives, they explain that item, but also they did a director's commentary on it, and then they did a behind-the-scenes explanation of each item. So he was getting tons of... extraordinary level of detail yeah, and consideration. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, he was getting tons of lore, and I think that's something which Resident Evil is missing quite recently. Yes, and it could do it so well don't, with the story that we've got. It's almost like it touched on it in the earlier games, but you're right, in the re- boot of re2 with textures on these next gen consoles it just yeah. seems that stars leaflet give some backstory behind it and then have the, the director's commentary on it like how they created it because i know in the director's commentary for the archives that they credited yourself eric for a few things they said that you drew bella monroe's diary cover yes yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to dive into a story on that, but yeah, the the reason I did that was because they basically wanted to make it look like something that came from obviously little a little girl. Uh and because my art skills are terrible <laughs> I was up to the task. Like the problem with having an artist do that is because the artist is it's one of those things where they can't really undo their training, so it's not gonna look like it came from a little girl. But thankfully because I'm a terrible artist, <laughs> I can do the job. It is a lot better than I could do anyway, I'll tell you that. <laughs> 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 in that uh, diary as well there's something about premonitions of Handua Bella has premonitions do you know how she had premonitions the Bella character might have taken some inspiration from maybe like the the kid in in the shining or something like that ah oh wow it feels like there's some of that background there you actually wrote the script for Melissa's digital videotape as well is that true yeah, that seems like it could be right. Like the archive stuff that's in kind of an English base is probably stuff that I would have written together with Naoko Sato. So that's, yeah, it could be stuff that I wrote. The director and the scenario writer had things that they wanted in there, but in terms of like the actual writing of it, rather than kind of throw out the Japanese first and then kind of restrict me to translating that, I think they gave me a little more leeway, which probably helps because if I if I have the Japanese in my mind, going back to the Resident Evil, like the reason we have an editor like Brandon or something in the first place is because if he doesn't have that Japanese in his mind, he can look at the English with kind of a native outlook and, and see like, okay, this sounds weird. Whereas if you have the original Japanese in your mind, one of the problems is you see the English and and you know it's correct because it's it's giving the meaning across and so you don't see the fact that it sounds weird to someone who's hearing it for the first time. So that's the advantages of, for example, writing it in English in the first place as opposed to to having a Japanese script that you're translating it in into English. There's also a website as well, the Handua website. Do you remember the online camera on there? 
yes, uh, yes, icon. yes, yes. <laughs> yes. You, you recall this, yeah? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's inactive it. now, so I can't find it. Yeah, yeah. The, the one of the archive things, I guess, for people who play Siren, you go around and you collect different archive items. But one of the archive items is actually a video of two people like who are trying to pretend and, and like make a cheesy Star Wars kind of rip-off movie, and then a jackalope, the jackalope man appears. Oh. <laughs> and uh, if you look closely enough, you, you can see one of the people is actually me. <laughs> oh, really? It was really interesting. It was like a mythological creature. <laughs> and not just a jackalope, but a jackalope man. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I heard the suit looks really good, apparently, but they, they couldn't show it tidy or something, which is why I wanted to see her on that camera, but you can't find her anyway. So the site <laughs> is now defunct, which is a, a shame. Ah, uh, yeah. That, that's one of the problems with doing a lot of online resources and stuff. Even with like Siren 2, like even when I was at, at an outsource company, I actually had a chance to work on some of the Siren 2 like website stuff and translating that. But um, website stuff vanishes over time. Raising my hand up here. <laughs> I don't know why, I'm just raising my hand. That doesn't work for radio. <laughs> All right, next question comes from Kira. The question is, were you or are you now familiar with the first two Siren games prior to Blood Curse? And if so, what do you think of them? Oh, yes, yes, yes. The first two Siren games, I was definitely familiar with them prior to Blood Curse. The first Siren game, if you can look it up, the original commercial that they aired on public television for advertising Siren is absolutely brightening. But when I saw that, I fell in love with it and had to get a PlayStation 2 just to play Siren. It sounds like they were really quite impacting. Yes, they were. Quite scary. Actually, the, the advertisements were so over the top that in Japan, I think they actually ordered them to take them off the air because they were just too much. Uh, so that's actually what got me to buy a PlayStation 2, and that was my first game on it. Siren. When Siren 2 came out, I jumped on that right away. The first two Siren games were quite difficult. Although you don't have shortcuts and things like that, things that fans like about Demon Souls and Dark Souls games are kind of in the Siren games too, where it's just really difficult. And it's just the challenge and the kind of thrill of beating a stage when it's so difficult that kind of makes those, those games addicting. I've always tended to find particularly the boss fights in the early Resident Evil games far too easy. More in the earlier Resident Evil games, oddly, than the later ones. I miss that challenge. Yeah, and that was something that's definitely in the original Resident Evil games. And then like Silent Hill, that was one game where you could you could just run out of bullets and go into a boss fight. Your only choice is to start the game over or something to have enough bullets to get through the boss fight. Or hope your melee weapon don't break. Yeah. Again, it was in a latter edition, maybe, was it 7, where I realised in terms of the lack of ammunition I had, I had all the right items in order to progress, but I just didn't have sufficient ammunition to continue and literally had to start the game again. Yeah, and that happened to me even in RE4, probably because I wasn't very familiar with the game when I played it, what you're supposed to kill and, and avoid and stuff like that, because I'm, I'm used to more maybe modern games where you're just trying to kill everything. <laughs> it must be so hard to get that balance right, and that's one of the things I really wasn't happy with with Resident Evil 5, when you started killing enemies and they were leaving ammunition, you know, survival horror is all about desperately finding it, and you want to be scared of the enemies and run away, be concerned of their incoming presence rather than, all. Oh, there's another one I can just quickly shoot and pick up more ammunition whereas Code Veronica which I absolutely adore I don't think gets that balance right actually and you get far too many health items too many bullets 
yeah, I think with Veronica, it was in a way that's what made that game a little more easy for more players. And then RE5, of course, yeah, you're trying to kill everything because you're hoping they drop something juicy. <laughs> Yeah, and I wish, I don't know why there's no hard mode for Code Veronica, which I just think would take the game to another level. Sorry, I always do this, go on about Code Veronica or Dead Aim, sorry. <laughs> so this question comes from Kira. Were any stages of the development more difficult than expected to make work? For example, the game having an unusual blend of both Japanese culture and Western characters. Yeah, in terms of that, it probably wasn't so bad for overseas, but I think a lot of like Japanese Siren fans were kind of confused by why why the series wasn't just like number three and why they were remaking it and why they were kind of remaking it with Western characters. That was probably a factor uh, in terms of the domestic audience that was kind of difficult. In terms of blending them, I guess in a way that's why they brought me in to try and make sure that there wasn't anything that was too odd, you know, like a you know Western character that a Japanese person kind of came up with probably wouldn't seem very natural, especially with Siren, because because it does kind of have that live action look in a way. It's more realistic. So you, you kind of have to have people behaving the way that people would be. So having a Western character written by a Japanese person probably wouldn't work out so well. And that's that's probably why they needed someone on the team to help with that stuff. There is quite a bit of backstory. If you played Blood Curse, you might miss out on some of the backstory from Forbidden Siren. But if you went back and played Forbidden Siren, you could still take that missing backstory and insert it into Blood Curse and it still fits. Yeah, yeah. They were definitely very good about that stuff. In terms of like story and keeping track of stuff, that's one thing where uh, Naoko Sato being like in charge of scenario throughout the series really helped those games stay consistent and be the kind of things that they are. Like even now, even though there hasn't been a Siren game released since uh, Blood Curse, there's still a huge fan community in Japan around it. And they still have events and things where they show artwork and fans are lined out the door to, to see it. There's still mangas for it as well. The manga came out last year for it. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't say it's a dead franchise yet. You might see more from this series. Yeah, it's probably one of those things where just um, Blood Curse, because it didn't get uh, promoted so much or whatever overseas, it didn't do as well as they thought it would. So maybe they just thought that it's time to lay the series to rest or whatever. But they're, the fans of it, you know, myself included, I guess, would love to see another Siren game. And it was so well critically received. Had you heard since of any rumors or preparations for making another? Yeah, I haven't heard anything, but certainly possible because they do have that. They do have that great concept. They do have the the concept. I think if they made a game and and got it publicized the right way, there's there's enough people out there that want to play a scary game now. Like even Resident Evil Seven kind of proved that that people want to play scary games. It doesn't have to be about like everything has to be action for it to be popular and sell. So I think the fact that that concept has kind of been proved in a way, thanks to Capcom and Resident Evil Seven, maybe there's more of an opening for them to try and promote a new Siren game. That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> Fingers crossed. I would love to play another Siren game, especially working on Blood Curses that I couldn't play it as, as a fresh player and, and be scared by it because I've seen it <laughs> seen it in development. So that was one of the bad things. But if they made another Siren game, that would be great because I could play it again as a player. Yeah. Uh, so you're already aware of the jump scares and things before they came. <laughs> get ready. Get this, this thing ready. Get ready to run here. The problems with Resident Evil 4... When I first joined Capcom, that was my first job, so to speak. Even the first month that I was there was the, the European testing of the game. They had European testers, and I was there to kind of help interpret between them and the team. And so I got to see Resident Evil 4 played over and over again by four people. So <laughs> it, was, it was kind of hard to jump in and, and want to play the game as a fresh player. So that's why I put it off for so long. One of the things I just loved, I thought Siren did so well, was the perspective of the enemies as they hunt you down. 
I've really enjoyed the mechanic Resident Evil 4 when you play as Ashley hiding and they very much took that to Resident Evil 7. But I thought you did really well when you're hiding from those enemies that you can see the perspective of the enemies and not just their viewpoint, but you can hear what's going on and you can hear the insanity in their mind and almost felt a bit of empathy for them when you can, you know, feel almost and hear what they're going through. Yeah, yeah, that's that was a brilliant system because you're hiding, so you're vulnerable and you're in their head. So if you do get spotted, <laughs> you actually get to see yourself spotted. And that's that's one of the worst moments that can happen in that game. Because <laughs> yeah. yeah. then you panic and start running and then you run into other other ones. <laughs> they turn and look at you and then you know they're looking at you. Because yes. you, you yeah, and you them. hear them react. <laughs> 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 Lone Wolf Kai says Japanese survival horror is how I would describe Siren. Do you think Resident Evil 4 should have been more like Siren? And if so, what elements from Siren Blood Curse would you like to see in the next Resident Evil game? Oh, that's a great question. That's a tough one to answer because, yeah, they've kind of gone in different directions. Like we've been talking about, Resident Evil 4 and Beyond have been more, maybe moving into more of an action direction until, at least until 7. It's tough because, like, I think Resident Evil, in a way, moving into a more action direction is probably what allowed Resident Evil to be popular and get more gamers into the game, as opposed to something like Siren or maybe even um, Fatal Frame, games like that, even Silent Hill, I guess. But yeah, games like that where it's just, it's more horror dependent and there's just fewer players that want to play those kind of games, I guess, at least until recently. So Resident Evil 4 moving in the direction it did is probably the correct choice, at least from a business perspective. And it's thanks to that that we have RE games that we do. So it's it's tough to say that even though I, as a player, I would prefer scarier games because we talked about Dead Space and Outlast and stuff like that. And all those are games that I love. Anything that's scary is a game I love. So just as a player, I would prefer Resident Evil be in a scary direction. But I think in terms of getting the popularity it did and helping Capcom the way it did, they probably made the right decision with it. In terms of elements from Siren to be in the next Resident Evil game, that's a tough one. But if they could do something that would put you into the perspective of the enemies that you're fighting, that would be great. Even if you're playing an enemy or something, even just a short sequence or something, that, that might be a cool way to go. All right, this one comes from Dark Moon. How does translating Siren, which has a lot of bases in Japanese mythology, compare to the one that's got more Western setting and characters like the Resident Evil series? Yeah, this is a good question. I can say right now, the biggest difference is that it's it's much more difficult. <laughs> With a game that has more Western setting and characters like Resident Evil, you can kind of rely on, on what sounds right in terms of Hollywood movies and games and action games and stuff like that. And it translates better. When you have the final results in English, it's something that makes sense to a lot of people. But when you have something like Siren, the tricky thing is it's like you have to strike this balance between We've talked about this before in some of the other questions, but like how far you go in making something that makes sense to a broad audience as opposed to something that preserves the original source material. And with Siren, because it's so Japanese, I guess is the way to say it, because it takes place in a Japanese village, you know, Japanese curses, uh, a lot of Japanese folklore, everything else. You can't westernize it too much because then it would just completely, it wouldn't make sense as a game. So you do have to protect that Japanese stuff, but how do you do that in a way that still makes sense to someone who's only seeing this in English and doesn't have that background? And I think with Siren, the balance we struck, at least with Blood Curse, is a pretty good balance. 
but there's probably going to be elements in there that don't make sense to people who aren't familiar with Japan. And there's probably elements where someone who's familiar with Japan, it's it's too westernized. Whoever had to translate Fatal Frame stuff would probably come up with similar issues. But a lot of yes. that's very, very Japanese. So, yeah. you know, the, the kind of ghosts that come at you and why they're scary and all that sort of stuff is very rooted in Japanese stuff. So it's creepy. I mean, obviously, wherever you go, a ghost coming at you is going to be creepy. But just without that background, there's probably a different layer of fear to it. Eric, this question comes from Dark Moon again. Do you ever play the games you work on after release? If so, have you ever gone whoops <laughs> at something that's been done or maybe you've done? <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've played every game I've worked on after it's been released. Always buy them and play them. Even Resident Evil 5, that's one of the things, because it had the co-op mode, uh, that's what me and Brandon, the editor, we played co-op together through the whole game and enjoyed it. But it's tough to see your own work when it's done because you can look back on it. And especially if you've had some time to relax and, and kind of get the reasons for why things were done the way they were done out of your head and you can kind of play it as a player again. Yeah, there are definitely whoops moments. It's probably one of those things where I try to strike it and not think about it too much because <laughs> if I dwell on it, uh, it it's going to bother You bury that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but there are definitely whoops moments after anything I've played and it's like, why didn't I do this or I should have done this? Yeah, it's, it's tough not to criticize the stuff you've worked on after you've played it. Another question from you in USS Command. They both ask, what is the hardest thing you had to translate to another language but still kept the meaning? Oh, so many things. So many things. At least all the Capcom stuff I worked on. Thankfully, I guess one of the things about Capcom is that most of their games do usually keep, like, at least from when I was there, they do keep a Western audience in mind. The themes that they have are more like action-based and, and stuff like that. It wasn't too hard to translate stuff at Capcom, but after moving to Sony, like the Siren series, that was very hard to translate. <laughs> <laughs> the scenario writer on Siren, she's very, very, very literate and has read lots of books, consumed lots of movies, contents, entertainment, uh, very knowledgeable about that stuff and has a very literary style that can be very deep and even just like one Japanese character the way it's being used can have a lot of meaning that's very difficult to translate into english it's hard to think of an exact example but just in general <laughs> and i think bsa arkley mentioned with its extensive narrative resident evil 5 must have been one of the bigger challenges of the resident evil games that you have taken on yeah, yeah, because it's mixing in new stuff with all of the old stuff as well and trying to balance that. In terms of like, yeah, trying to balance, even more than Resident Evil 5, we were talking about Umbrella Chronicles, that might have been more difficult for that reason because it was covering a lot of the same ground at the same time, but you couldn't just use the translations from the past for obvious reasons. So trying to find that perfect balance in that game was, it was definitely hard. Uh, with Resident Evil 5, they had a lot of history and stuff, but at least the game itself wasn't covering the same ground, so you, you could kind of reinterpret it. One of the things I'm most embarrassed about working with Capcom and Onimisha 3, you know, they have all those messages in the game where you, when you investigate something. We love those environmental messages, and that's one of the, my major gripes with the series as it's continued. They've dropped those. Yeah, that's true. It's kind of gone to more files and more environmental stuff. Well, like Bioshock and things like that are probably influences as well, but going to more environmental things. But yeah, the, the Onimisha 3 thing, like you'd have like, you know, bodies on the ground. Obviously, a lot of people die in Onimisha 3. <laughs> There's lots of bodies, and then it says, oh, okay, well, they must have been cut down, blah, blah, blah. Because Japanese doesn't have subjects and we're just getting these messages that basically, if you were to translate it directly, would just say, died. <laughs> and you're like, well, okay, he died, she died, they died, or something like that. And you're just making assumptions. And I remember it was something where I thought that it was just going to be one person on the ground. But then when I actually played the game later during like the debugging phase, and I saw that there were multiple bodies or something, and oh, whoops, have to change this today. 
And that just really speaks to a lot of the errors that came up in inconsistencies when fan sites were new spot from Project Umbrella, from the main sites that translated. That really does make sense to a lot of those errors. I think now it's a, it's a lot better. Even when I was there, it started getting better. But before, especially when translation was outsourced, the people who are translating the game have never actually seen the game and never even see their translations in the game. So there's no chance to kind of fix that stuff. So kind of looking back, if you're playing through the game and weird stuff pops up, it's pretty obvious. But at least forgive the translators a little bit because they don't get to see the game. And like I said before, Japanese is pretty high context. So yeah, uh, it's really hard to get things right problems I was having with the Japanese. I couldn't tell if the story was being told from Chris's perspective or from the writer's perspective. It seems to be no context to like first person. It doesn't say if it's from I or they, and then you don't know which one it is when it's telling the story. That's exactly like how little context you have from Japanese to English. You don't have he or she usually. You don't use subjects. You don't have I or we. You don't have they, things like that. Mm. You, you can force it into Japanese, but they don't usually use it. And then the other thing you don't have is nouns don't have number. So that kind of goes back to the bodies lying on the ground in Onimusha 3, but there's no number to things. So in Japanese, like you might have the character for car or something, but you don't know if it's one car, two cars, a hundred cars, you know, none of that gets conveyed. <laughs> That's pretty confusing. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> why it's very important to be able to play the game with all the translations in there and be able to fix those things as they come up this one's from york and he says with remake 2 just released is there any game you would like to see remade that you would love to work on oh yeah this is a really tough question there are a lot of games that i love and would love to see either new versions or remakes of i guess in general I would actually prefer, in most cases, for a new game over a remake. But they did remake the series, and I think they've had spiritual successors and stuff. But the Deus Ex games are dear to my heart. They do do follow-ups that are that are excellent. But to be able to work on a Deus Ex game would have been awesome. Also, System Shock, any of those games, too. But I'll go for a more obscure title. There's an old horror game called Undying, uh, which is based on a Clive Barker thing. I think Clive Barker worked on that game, and that was very, very creepy. I didn't know about the game until someone recommended it to me, and I actually played through it, and was it was quite, quite scary, but I don't think that many people knew about it, and it was great. It would be awesome to see that remade, because there's so much potential in there. It was, it was very creepy. Clive Barker, he did the Jericho one as well? Yeah, the Jericho one was all right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was going to okay say. With that one, <laughs> the Jericho but, one didn't seem that good. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it, but yeah, it wasn't it wasn't quite what I was expecting, especially because he did Undying before, which was a great game. I was really pumped for Jericho when it came out, but it was it was just kind of a, a pretty typical action game. But the Undying game would be awesome to see. I know there's another game too, the Call of Cthulhu game. They've got the new one out, and I haven't been able to play it, but I'm dying to play it. Eric, we're coming to the last question. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. We've been recording now for over two hours, so it's extremely kind. Over to Aaron, who's got the last question. The final question, the last question comes from Yoke, and it's a simple question. What is your favorite English and Japanese word? <laughs> oh, wow. Well, let's see. I guess I'll, I'll pick a word that kind of came to me. I would say simulacra. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right. It could be simulacra or something else. But the concept of like there's being kind of reality has been copied so much that there's no original reality left anymore. That kind of philosophical concept and just that word combined when I ran across it have really had an impression on me. And I really enjoy reading about that concept and, and thinking about that concept in terms of like media and everything else. Uh, just is something real or is it not real? I know the philosopher had problems with like the way it was kind of treated in Matrix. The fact that Matrix does have a reality kind of means that that word is not being used in the, in the right way or whatever is, is probably what he thought of it. But 
just that concept is awesome. And I, I like thinking about that. And the word sounds cool too. Um, <laughs> in terms of Japanese word, I guess I can't say it's a favorite Japanese word, but it's kind of a, a Japanese word that sums up a lot of the kind of culture shock that you'll experience if you do come to Japan. And that's shogunai, roughly translated into it can't be helped. It's kind of a very Japanese concept where <laughs> there's not this kind of sense that you can always fix everything or that or that there's always a way to do something.、Uh, and I think in a way, I think I think Europe's different, but I think in America, it's all, there's always kind of feeling like if you look at movies and everything else that come out of America, it's usually you can fix problems if you use enough guns and bullets and, <laughs> and rockets and stuff, you can fix problems. But I think in a lot of Japanese movies and stuff, you do have a lot of endings that are just kind of dark and nothing can be helped. Like, well, Siren, I guess, is one example of that. But just yeah, it can't be helped. There's just forces of nature and forces that are just beyond your control, and things don't always go the way you want them to, and you just have to accept it. And I think that word gets used a lot in kind of a bad context too. Like if someone is capable of helping, and they just say that and kind of run away, but <laughs> but it's just kind of a very very central to the culture difference. Well, that's a wonderful answer. Thank you, Eric. I'll hand over to the other guys to say their thank yous. But just from me, George, Trevor, I just like to say thank you so very much. It's a, been a fascinating insight that we've not had before. We've never interviewed somebody so closely related with the localization and you know with the narratives, and as well just to hear your experience as a fan of the series. It's been fantastic and very much a privilege for Crimson Head Elder to release this to the survival horror community. Oh, it's my privilege and my honor too. Thank you very much for reaching out to me and, and interviewing me. And I hope, I really do hope that someday you get the chance to track down Miguel and Brandon and get their take on these games as well. They've had their part in them too,、um, and they deserve、uh, a chance to, to speak out on it. Especially like Brandon, I would love to see because he's so big into the RE games, be able to talk to the community and, and be asked questions and be interesting. I'm sure. Well, I want to say thank you for joining us, taking your time to answer a lot of our questions and such. And if you know anybody else that wants to talk to us about their experience with Resident Evil or any other horror game, send them our way. <laughs> That's meant to be my job. <laughs> Go over here, talk to these people. They're really nice. <laughs> the Oracle Dragon has just outsourced our interviewing skills over to you, Eric. <laughs> Just echoing what George said. Thank you very much. Fascinating to get behind the scenes with the localization stuff, and really appreciate you taking the time to answer some of my questions as well on Siren. Oh, you're very welcome, and and thank you for the Siren questions. That's a game I do wish more people would play. So, <laughs> <laughs> and I apologize in advance for not being able to give more detail. I know you guys want more detail, but it's it's one of those things where just ten years of time have kind of made a lot of these things slip from my mind. So you probably know a lot more about some of these things than I do. <laughs> well, we'll let you go and enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Thank you so much, Eric. Okay, you guys have a nice、thank、day、you. too.